Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Everybody, it's our dirty laundry, and I'm Mandy, <laughs> and I'm Katie. This is um, a podcast that you come to listen to the stories of white women being really shitty and participating in all sorts of nasty business. And mm-hmm. we have been knee deep, further than knees, I would say, <laughs> eyeballs, eyeballs deep. Yeah, I was going to say, gonna say- <laughs> suffocating level. Yes, <laughs> yes. I- <laughs> I was going to say tits deep, but that just sounds like <laughs> uncomfortable. It makes me cringe. It's been uncomfortable. It <laughs> has been. Yes. This, yeah, this has been a really intense season of us looking at the history of eugenics and white women's participation in that, either the ways they've benefited from eugenics, but definitely also the ways that white women have participated in eugenics. And we had another incredible guest. What is yeah. happening? How? I know. I'm so amazed. Um, I don't know how we pull this off. I don't know. No idea. But it's great. It's really great. Um, Yes, we have a great guest. And what I loved about talking to Wayne, and we'll give him an introduction (laughs) here in a second, but I think you mentioned this in the interview, is that we have focused a lot about eugenics and the way that it um, has been used in like reproductive manners, Mm -hmm. biologically. Um, And then this interview like shines a whole nother light that I hadn't really ever thought about. Um, And we're going to talk about how it's used in like educational testing and Mm -hmm. the like education system in general, which is crazy. So yeah, I know it gives me no. Yeah, for sure. It gives me like the heebie jeebie goosebumps to just think Mm -hmm. about how pervasive. And I remember Kara saying this, like the logic of eugenics, that is an ideology is just Mm -hmm. inherent in so much of our lives in the United States and education and testing is absolutely no exception. So Wayne Al is a an educator, activist, scholar who is known uh, really worldwide for his scholarship on race and class and power in schooling. He is currently professor in the School of Educational Studies at the University of Washington Bothell. He's also the Dean of Diversity and Equity there. He is an editor of the teaching magazine, Rethinking Schools. If any educators are listening and you're not familiar, Rethinking Schools is an incredible publication. It has a million books, a really fantastic magazine. He Wayne has also been um, the editor of books through Rethinking Schools, like Rethinking Ethnic Studies, Teaching for Black Lives. He's also the author of a lot of different books, including Unequal by Design, High Stakes Testing, and The Standardization of Inequality. And in 2020, he wrote a great chapter. And I think this is what I sent you to prep for the interview, Mandy. But it's Mm -hmm. in a book called What's Race Got to Do With It? How Current School Reform Policy Maintains Racial and Economic Inequality. And his chapter there was High Stakes Testing, a Tool for White Supremacy for 100 Years. Um, And really, Wayne is actually a friend of mine from grad school. We were both at the University of Wisconsin-Madison together at the same time. He was like a kind of like on his way out as this rock star grad student as I was just starting. And so he set the bar very, 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 very high for Mm -hmm. doing really incredible research. And and I've just always been really inspired by him and his work. So I was grateful he took time to talk to us and was just another fascinating conversation and kind of, you know, a combination of 
terrifying, inspiring. My sister told me that she listens, whenever she listens to an episode, that she goes through the same emotional arc that she feels Mm -hmm. like first disgust and shame and then rage and then inspiration and then like back again, (laughs) like just on a loop. (laughs) And I feel that. Yeah. Well, I was going to say he totally changed like my paradigm of thinking of testing, because one Mm -hmm. of the things that he brings up is like, if you were good at these tests, then of Mm -hmm. course you're going to want to think that they're valid, which I'm a great test taker. I don't know Mm -hmm. why for some reason, like my brain (laughs) is built to like pick out the information Mm -hmm. that's going to be tested on. Like I just Mm -hmm. know the points that they're going to go on and I tend to memorize things well. And so I always did really well on tests. So I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, these are great. It turns out, <laughs> yeah. it turns out <laughs> that uh, that's very white of me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how very white of you. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we both were really good at school. I think we were little nerds. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot to be said for interrogating why schools are organized the way they are. And and that's what Wayne's work really does is look at why these structures and systems were built in the first place for testing and tracking. And I think one of the things that really stuck with me was how the, like the initial ideas sometimes came from a place to disrupt nepotism and like automatic distribution of resources based on wealth. Like I I think Mm -hmm. there's a kernel of that, but when, when your desire to disrupt that is paired with eugenics, you just get a whole other hierarchy and you're like, well, you're a garbage person. And so you belong in this track over here. And this is the bus you take to school. And Mm -hmm. then you are this, you know, person that we have, we're going to put all of our faith in and that we think is going to be amazing. And so then we're going to send you on this track. And, and then it just repeats itself over generations. And you have these incredibly predictable disparities in education. And yeah, anybody who's excited about Wayne's conversation with us should definitely check out more of his work, which of course we will link to at our website, com. And as always, Uh, Please subscribe if you have not already to the podcast and like us, review us. That helps other people find us. Yeah, for sure. And enjoy listening to this and be ready to kind of question what you want to do raising your own kids, I guess, for those of you who have them or who have other family, friends, whatever, pass this information along because I know it's made me rethink how I'm going to approach this stuff with my own children in school now. So, oh, for sure. And if anybody, I mean, this will, I'm sure we'll have a conversation about this as the podcast keeps unfolding, but you know, those websites you can go to that like great school districts, greatschools.com mm-hmm. or whatever it is. It, it totally maps onto wealth and whiteness, you know, yep. like a school is rated like nine out of 10 or blue ribbon or whatever it is. So even just in thinking about my kids being at the cusp of, of school age and how easy it is to get sucked into that, even when I know what bullshit it is, it is really easy to get sucked in. So I'm planning on listening to this conversation more than once <laughs> to yeah. just dr- <laughs> drill into my soul. Um, sure. Yeah. Right. Well, enjoy, everybody. We are so thrilled to talk to you today. And not, I'm just happy to see your face and to be able to talk to you in general. But um, Wayne, I was a friend, a good friend of mine from grad school, who is, I'm going to say, the leading expert in eugenics and schooling. Is that a fair assessment? 
one of oh, these? Oh, no, no, that's what, that's what you're overhyping me. There's others who are, uh, Steve Seldon, for instance, wrote a whole book on it. Um, but my, my main connection to it is because I know there's these strong linkages between high stakes standardized testing and the history of testing and, and eugenics movement. And so there's a section of that work that definitely there's an intersection that I've, that I've, that I've sort of been in for a while. That's great. How so, were you introduced to it? If you want to start with that, like, how did you get, I assume you were doing education as your, you know, as your history. And then when did eugenics get introduced into that for you? Yeah. So, you know, um, I was doing my dissertation on high stakes standardized testing and I was researching the history of te- the history of testing. And there was a whole uh, early movement, and this is all familiar uh, territory for Katie, um, <laughs> called um, the social efficiency movement uh, in, in sort of early curriculum history. And we're talking like early 1900s um, in the United States. And the social efficiency movement was essentially this idea that we should be developing curriculum for um, uh, different kinds of people. And, and that if we had an efficient school curriculum, an efficient school system, a socially efficient school system, then you know, we wouldn't bother training you know, workers to be university students because they're never going to go there. We, if we were efficient, we'd be training them for, for working, right? And so you can mm-hmm. see this whole idea of tracking and inequality wrapped in there. And as I started to explore that, I saw these overlaps because some key folks um, in social efficiency, like um, uh, this guy named Bobbitt, um, he actually he actually published on eugenics and schooling. Um, he has some early essays on that, and so so then I got to see this overlap because testing was beginning was going to become sort of the like key tool for figuring out who deserved to go where and who who deserved what kind of schooling. So, had you heard of the eugenics movement in general before you were doing this research? Like, do you remember it at all from the rest of your schooling? Um, a, a little bit, only because um, I, I always had a, um, this will be news to Katie, I always had a, a, a side of me that was a little bit of a, a biology nerd back in the day. Actually, <laughs> I actually started as a marine biology major in, in my undergraduate. And, mm. um, and so I was always into folks like Stephen Jay Gould was one of my favorite authors and I used to just read his essays and books, even as, as you know, high school uh, and even as a high school student and, and university and undergrad, I would just read his books. Um, and so I always, I always liked some of the more radical science stuff and sort of understanding the interplay of society and science. Um, and so it was through basically Stephen Jay Gould's stuff that I sort of got to see how, you know, things like Mismeasure of Man and, and some of those classic texts that were talking about, um, uh, you know, folks trying to measure intelligence and, um, and, and, and map what their construction of intelligence onto race and gender and class and all that other stuff. So. Yeah, I think it's it is the the idea of like tracking who deserves what, like trying to distribute resources in a quote efficient way. The last episode that we um, did where Mandy was teaching us was about forced sterilization, and even thinking about really recent court cases where doctors and nurses will say this just saves money. It just this this woman having a baby is going to cost the state X number of dollars in welfare or, you know, presumption of incarceration or whatever it is. And so then you say, look, this $300 sterilization procedure is so much cheaper. So can you talk a little bit about that, that ideology or the logic that's under it? And like, we've been talking um, about eugenics with regards to reproductive rights, but we haven't talked about it at all with regards to schooling. So can you just walk us through a little bit, like, what does that idea look like when you apply it to schools? 
Well, for me, in a big picture way, school schools withstanding, I really think eugenics is ultimately about, you know, access and distribution of resources. Um, because what it does is it determines who deserves what, right? Mm-hmm. And it's and it says like, oh, you are worthy or you're unworthy. And mm-hmm. if you're worthy, you get you get this. And if you're unworthy, we're gonna do this to you and you don't get this resource, right? And so mm-hmm. and so if we map that onto schools, um, then we we see this sort of bigger discussion about about like you know essentially different values of human life uh, of students right in schools and their communities and then in turn who get like what what should you be learning right is really the big thing um, that that came out of this um, and, and and this in all honesty you know this it's all it's all mixed together because not only did we have essentially the origins of standardized testing really our modern day standardized testing has its origins in this movement to sort and rank kids and therefore determine what kinds of education they have, right? You see this real uh, consistent eugenic logic in, in, in that. Um, so, but not only do we have testing as origins there, we also have, you see tracking like begins there. So even now, whether they paint it as AP or highly capable, HCC, whatever you wanna, whatever you wanna call it, um, the idea of, of, of that the idea that different populations are deserving of different kinds of education mm-hmm. uh, for whatever innate reason or whatever test score or what like the, all that logic really comes comes back to um, uh, this sort of eugenic logic of like different populations deserve different things and we're going to use some some measure to decide that and in our case in our country it's been um, high stakes standardized testing so um, it's really just about that 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 measurement. Uh, sorting and ranking, and then from there, figure out who gets what. And just another clarifying question, because I know Mandy has a million questions too, but just thinking about uh, that that sorting and that tracking and the eugenics logic, and some of it is very like openly bigoted and openly mm-hmm. elitist and classist and xenophobic and racist and sexist, right? But a lot of it is also couched in in rhetoric about equality and like meritocracy and like this, this is a measure to keep that from happening, to keep these patterns of like, oh, you're white. So you get this, like testing is a way around that. Can you talk a little bit about that irony of all of this, the, the, the myth of the meritocracy and the, that rhetoric? Yeah. I mean, you, you really hit on this key thing because it's true. I mean, it, the, you go back to, you know, uh, earlier times, go back a hundred years, go back 80 years, people were pretty open about their, racism, sexism, xenophobia, nationalism, classism, all that kind of stuff in particular ways. And of course, we've seen a, a resurgence of that um, with the rise of the of the far right and the, sort of the rise of, of white nationalism. Um, but but it's it's one of the great, greatest ironies of, of, of the history of high-stakes standardized testing and its relation to sorting populations is that um, if you go back to those earliest tests um, from these folks like it was these U.S. psychologists, Terman and Yerkes and Goddard and these other folks, um, Stanford professors and that kind of stuff, like really like bigwig um, academics. They presumed that the tests that they were using were objective measures of human intelligence. Mm-hmm. They clearly were not. But because they because they thought that these measures were objective, then that led them to the conclusions that the populations that scored in particular ways, for instance, in their case, they found that um, uh, you know, that the poor uh, were less intelligent than the rich. 
and that that women were less intelligent than men that um that uh they that that um uh, black and brown people obviously were 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 less intelligent than white people and they even found that southern europeans were less intelligent than northern europeans by their so so if you assume the test is objective then you assume that this results are objective and then that gives you this sort of this logic of like oh we have this test we have this tool that can measure everybody objectively and individually and therefore it's fair and then the outcomes themselves are also fair and and the reason why i brought all, all that history up relative to your question katie is that that is the exact same logic that we have now running through our current high stakes standardized tests everyone like the system presumes that it is a fair and objective measure um, or at least a fair enough and objective enough measure to make real life-changing decisions about human populations when the reality is is that um, you know these tests um, are, are not are not merit meritocratic and fair and objective measures of individuals at all and they've they've always had the strongest correlations the strongest um, uh, connections of measurement to basically class and race uh, and also whether or not your parents had col had college degrees I mean these other factors um, in insecure housing uh, food security access to medical care all these other things actually impact test scores uh, more than anything that happens inside of a school honestly um, so and that's just speaking statistically and so and so we're here we have this thing that's promised to be an individual measure of meritocratic achievement and if you just work hard you can do well and and then we can use that to make decisions about your life or if you can get to get to university or have this kind of job um, uh, and then the reality is that it's actually not that at all and it really ends up masking all these structural inequalities and also feeding into uh, you know, really sort of racist and classist arguments about uh, folks who don't do well on our current crop of tests. I think of what Katie and I've talked about um, when we're going through all this, like just a lack of recognition of how these all interplay in this. Cause I think for most people, we, our podcast is directed towards white women. Um, and for most of us, we're white women who are fairly you know, able-bodied, intelligent, probably have a lot of privilege in multiple different ways. And we probably never considered any of these things just mm -hmm. because it's what we were raised with. We never were questioned whether or not these tests were valid. Um, but I think a lot of it goes back to just a general idea of like what intelligence is, like how we define intelligence itself and then you have to trace that back to what is valued in the society and it, it's just so much deeper i think than what we what we know like what do you what is being tested in these tests like what are we putting <laughs> the values on like what are we saying intelligence is through these yeah. testing modes yeah it's a, it's a great question and the question of what is being tested is actually Two, two sides to it. The side that you're asking, of course, is, um, you know, uh, mainly testing people on their ability. For one, it's in some places, and this depends on different states have different tests, and there's different kinds of tests all over the place. So I want to be clear about that. Mm -hmm. um, but but a lot of the tests, you know, for one, just just ask for rote memorization of things, right? Like, like your ability to recall random facts about history or math or science or whatever, that's what you're being tested on. And that's that's a particular skill. I don't know how far that gets you in life, but it's a skill that's, you know, but that's one of the things that testing measures. Uh, it tends to measure knowledge and see, tests tended to basically view knowledge in 
decontextualized, out of context, right? And and they want you to to uh, process things, you know, not 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 within uh, the broader context of the knowledge itself. And so, like, take take a literature test, right? Oftentimes, they're asking you to maybe um, you know analyze you know a content of a paragraph or a content of a short story, um, where you're taking this thing that's sort of uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's an excerpt from a book. Like you're taking this piece that's from a larger body of work, and and when you need to be having it, when maybe your analysis might be might be affected and influenced by your a bigger understanding of this of this bigger piece of work, but instead you're asked to like go into like something that's decontextualized and and separate from from the larger body of knowledge, um, and that's again a particular a particular kind of thinking. I would say that a lot of the tests don't value, for instance, relational thinking, mm-hmm. um, understanding that you know, meanings and uses of things change depending on context, for instance. Um, and there's also a bunch of stuff that it just doesn't measure, right? Like it doesn't measure like um, necessarily, they don't necessarily measure like communication skills or, um, you know, uh, interpersonal relations and ability to be empathetic and, and, and feel like you can connect to other people and understand the situation and help them think about that stuff. I mean, there's, there's a whole range of sort of social emotional things that just cannot be captured on any of these tests. And so then, then you start to see Basically, with these tests, we are sort of placing a marker and, and saying, hey, we value these things over here uh, and, and we don't value this other stuff, right? And, mm-hmm. and the things that are being valued are highly selective. On the flip side of the question about what tests measure, like I said earlier, you know, I think tests are great measures of poverty. They, like like your, your access to resources in your life will, it will very strongly um, uh, determine uh, what kind of score you get in general sense. And there's other research, it's, it's really interesting, other research that, for instance, finds connections between like higher test scores and an increased amount of green space uh, around you. Um, uh, another one I was looking at recently was, was tests essentially measuring cognitive load. And that's to say that if you give kids the same test in the morning before they've had a bunch of school, they, they do better than if you give them the same test in the afternoon. Um, so their, their brains are not as tired. So you're actually measuring like brain fatigue with the tests. Um, another thing that they're, that we can say they're measuring, um, uh, is actually their stress response, right? So here we have a test that has stakes attached to it and students are freaking out about maybe they're going to pass this grade or graduate high school or whatever. So partly you're measuring their response to stress, uh, of test taking itself. And then there's even been other, a couple other studies that actually look at, um, about how much cortisol levels actually impact your ability to do well on tests as well. So there are environmental factors around just home life that can that can um, uh, that can contribute to our cortisol levels. And we know that increased cortisol actually inhibits your ability to think clearly about things, for instance. And so um, there's so in a way, where tests are actually measuring cortisol levels too. I mean, that's the thing. You know, we use these tests like they're measuring learning and teaching in some clear and objective way. Um, and the whole reality is that they're actually measuring a whole range of stuff that we're not taking into account. And we, we just sort of play this game, pretend that we're getting, an, once again, an objective measure of this kid or that teacher. Yeah, it, I'm thinking too about, you, Mindy, I think it is such a great question, like what is actually being tested? And when you pointed to this a little bit, like you, you can't decontextualize these questions even. So if you have a, you know, oh, it's just a math problem, but we're asking about like a yacht you know, or we're asking about something that's like super culturally specific or class specific, like, well, then that's going to be an easier question for kids who have knowledge from their lives about that thing than it is going to be for a kid that's never 
you know, seen a snowman before or so whatever it is, you know, it could be regional, it could be cultural, it could be all sorts of things. Um, I'm thinking too, Wayne, in your paper that we'll link to, you talk about these ideological limits of the test, and then you talk about the technical flaws. And, and I would even argue some ethical flaws, like just the creepy capitalist engine that are the test companies and the ways that the people that are scoring tests are incentivized to score tests in certain ways. I mean, to me, that's like an ethical fraud level problem with the test. So I don't know if you want to talk about that. And, and I think the fundamental question I have with all that is the book you wrote is called Unequal by Design. To what degree do you think this is all calculated or, in, you know, um, purposeful at this point to maintain structures and hierarchies, um, you know, or to what degree do you think people are true believers? Like, yes, these are objective. We just need to make them better. We just need to blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, to address the first part of your question, just there's just a, there's just a, a, a flurry, a bevy of, of technical issues surrounding the tests. Um, you know, even from a pure like statistical analysis, like like in some states, they use these tests to rate teachers and to try and try and use it for merit pay or other things, or to potentially um, get you know fire teachers from their jobs. And there's research that that shows that um, you know if you're using just two years of data to compare a teacher year over year. Um, you're actually looking at like 35% error rate in making that judgment, <laughs> right? Um, and then even if you have three years of data, you're still looking at a 25% error rate, right? And mm -hmm. so, so you can just see these, like, it's just very, very flawed technically um, in terms of what we're measuring. Um, and I, honestly, I, I don't think people in the psychometrics, the folks who make the tests, you know, they, they would disagree with me, but I would just say, I don't <laughs> think they really understand what they're measuring. I don't think they really know what they're measuring, basically. Mm -hmm. um, we pretend again that we're measuring intelligence or we're me measuring learning, but but it's it's there's so many other correlations. You can't. I don't think you can say that. So we have those kinds of things. There's the ethical stuff you raised. You know, because because the whole test industry, it's an industry. It is a money making industry. It is Pearson and McGraw and all these folks who make textbooks and other thing. It's an industry in multiple ways. You know, for instance, with the new tests, then you're going to need new test aligned textbooks. You might need new computer software. You might need new computers. Like all these things get piled up on like, and people are making money at every, every turn. Mm. There's that piece of it. But there's also, um, you know, just money in the test itself and these lucrative contracts between testing companies and districts. And so mm. um, uh, what you were referring to is this phenomenon of like, you know, I know this happened here in Washington state. So we are, in terms of our common core test, we are, uh, we've been a smarter balance test state. There's two different tests, the park and smarter balanced were smarter balanced uh, tests for the common core. And there is a writing, there's an essay section for this. Um, and the folks who do sm smarter balance, they needed to hire, they need to hire lots of people to like, like, you know, here's whatever 30,000 kids in Seattle public schools taking this test or whatever million kids in Washington state taking this test. Who's going to grade all those essay tests, right? You can't just feed it through a Scantron. So uh, so one thing one thing they were doing is they're actually advertising and here they're literally advertising on Craigslist like we found the ads for people to to get hired and trained to be hourly and or peace uh, peace uh, peace rate workers um, to to grade these tests right and so there's been these stories um, uh, uh, Joe DiMaggio is one of them this other guy named Farley um, is another one who worked inside some of these sort of test scoring 
uh, sweatshops, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's folks in cubicles in industrial parks who get training and they sit down and have to grade the test and they're getting paid on uh, how many tests they can grade in a period of time. And so if they if they move too slowly, like like they lose money. And so they're incentivized to rush the, the grading. Um, and, and so, um, you know, these folks are basically grading these, you know, uh, fourth grade essay tests in like, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, right? And these tests are, are the important decisions are being made about these children's future potentially uh, based on the scores of these tests. And so, so you have this sort of like uh, um, peace, you know, peace rate um, sweatshop, uh, <laughs> sweatshop um, uh, essay grading going on. Um, and so that's that's um, um, one big piece. So what was the second part of your question, Katie? Well, just um, you're knowing the title of your book, Unequal by Design. Oh yeah. Like well, there's I, purposeful I, yeah. Or not. Yeah, yeah. And and maybe it all depends on who the people are who are involved. But when it's just so clear how deeply flawed this is, and and looking at the history of of and I'll, I want to ask about this later, but just the way that it maps onto the history of of xenophobia and racism in the country, like there's no detangling it. So at some point, it is like, how do you justify still doing this? Not you. How do systems justify it? You know? Yeah. And you don't justify it. There's, there's, and again, there's multiple answers to that because part of it is um, there are true believers. Like I remember when No Child Left Behind passed in, in 2001, right? Um, there were folks in, uh, in the administration, uh, politicians and, and, um, and employees, uh, folks who are on both sides, Democrats, Republicans alike, who really believed that these tests were the best tool for closing the achievement gap. That's what all the language was around it, mm -hmm. right? Closing the achievement gap. Um, um, and so you saw all these, you know, Katie Haycock and all these folks like were like, you know, you know, this is what it is. And so, and so you saw everyone lining up for that kind of stuff. So those folks do exist. Um, I do think there are folks in the mix who, who understand the more nefarious aspects of this and are perfectly okay with that because it justifies their worldview. Right. Because if you believe the test. So imagine this, you know, you and your whole family have always done well on tests. And maybe you're some white guy politician who's risen to power and maybe went to Harvard or Yale and with the Bushes or something. Who knows? Right. Like 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 maybe that's that's who you are. And like those tests have always served you and your family. And, you know, what those are objective because they showed me that I'm intelligent and I deserve what I got. And so I'm OK with all these other people failing from whatever group because you know, that matches my worldview. That's just how the world works. It's capitalism. Some, some get, some don't. And, and if it's, if it's an objective measure, then, then that's, that's how it works. Right. So I think there's a lot of people who are like that too, um, uh, floating around. I also think there's a fair number of folks in education research, specifically psychometricians and folks in statistics who I kind of, it's kind of dramatic to say this, but I kind of think about it in terms of like the atom bomb, right? It's like, they're so caught up in trying to figure out a better science to it that they lose sight of what the broader implication is. Like they're just working the stats or they're doing value added measurement or they're doing, uh, you know, all these things that try and like improve. They're trying to tinker with the test to improve understanding of it, to make it better uh, without understanding that it's actually, you know, the, that the fallout, and I'll use that word specifically, the fallout is, is, is terrible for all these populations and it's actually not doing what folks are doing. So I think those folks exist too. And then one other space I'll put one other group of folks I'll say um, are are folks who are leery of the test and this is a lot of communities of color in particular who because they know some of this history right they're like eh, I don't quite, you know this this may not be the best thing and I understand there's some problems with it but it's the only thing we got and they have a pragmatic take on it of like 
like it's what we got it's in the system so we need to make use of this right and so we're going to go ahead and use that and so i see all those things but the title of the book has more to do with what we talked about way earlier in the podcast around the logics of the testing because the tests themselves the logic of the test they are they they are produced and designed to i'm sorry they're designed to produce inequality mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right that is in their logics um, mm -hmm. because according to the test makers the only way you can make you know a valid test is if it produces a bell curve of results, right? Because if it's, and you think about this, um, the, the, the common sense logics make sense because what happens if everybody passes a test? There's, there's two answers to it, right? Someone either cheated or it's a bad test. <laughs> Not right? that you taught well and everybody succeeded. Or maybe you had a bunch of smart kids that day, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you only get two responses to that. Like we, like the idea, the tests are built on the idea that if it's a good, quote unquote, good test, then you're going to have a small group passing here, a bunch of people in, in the middle and the people failing over here. And that's, and, that, and that's like these assessments are designed to produce that result. Um, mm -hmm. Even standards-based tests where they say, oh, we're going to measure the standard. They still take those results and then they work them back against the bell curve um, statistically. Right. Um, and so as long as you're using these kinds of assessments with this kind of a logic, then, then everyone's going to everyone's gonna, like there's always going to be failure. Mm -hmm. Right. That's they're built to have failure. There's just no there's just no way around. It. And then you map that onto our society that has such deep inequalities along racial lines, class lines, ethnic lines. Like we shouldn't be surprised then that these are intimately connected. Exactly. Exactly. <sighs> we do a yeah. lot of heavy sighing on this podcast, <laughs> Wade. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I was going to ask too, like, I know that I have heard just peripherally that there are some colleges and stuff that are no longer using standardized testing scores for admission because there's no um, correlation that's been demonstrated between these test scores and kids' actual success in schools. But then actually even asking that question, you have to go back to like, how are we defining success in the first place? Yeah. Like how and why does that matter? Like if they are successful in college, meaning what they get good grades in college or even that they get a quote unquote good job out of college, which means they make a lot of money. I mean, that's our measure of success. Like maybe you have somebody who is a really great businessman running some multi-billion dollar company, but he's on his third marriage and his kids are assholes and he's a narcissistic prick. Like who like, <laughs> do you test for that? So what does success even mean? And then overall, I'm just like, what the fuck are we even trying to measure? Like right. why, and why, why are we measuring totally. anything? Totally. I mean, that's the great irony of the SAT, right? The SAT came from folks saying, you know, back then, 100 years ago, like only the blue blood old school families with money who would, who would basically inherit their positions to get into Yale or Harvard and mm -hmm. all those elite colleges. And the folks who made the SAT were like, OK, we're going to make a test that will give every individual the right and access to get to those universities. And then that same, then those tests become the actual reproduction of inequality in, in, in terms of getting into those universities. Right. Um, and so we are seeing this movement now to drop the SAT um, as, as, as an entrance exam. I think that's a real win for us. So I can't emphasize that enough um, um, because it is true that the SAT is forever, you know, measured, you know, your, your class background, it's measured your parents' education and your grandparents' education above all else, right? We've just known that forever. So that, that's, that's, um, that's been a huge victory. 
And the other thing your point raises, Mandy, is just that this is the other thing that the general public doesn't actually get is that each test is designed for a different purpose, right? And so the SAT is actually designed supposedly to predict your, your success in college, right? It's, it's, a predi it's a predictive test. And then that's why universities use it because they, they would think, oh, if you do this well in SAT, then that'll show that you'll be quote unquote successful. But then what the research has never actually supported that. The research generally finds that, that you can do well in SAT, but actually it only has like, like a 25% or 30% correlation with folks actually having staying power in the university or something. It's like, it's a very low number. And so um, it, it doesn't really do that. And, and, and that, the thing that kills me about the whole thing around use too, is just that, um, you know, here in Washington state, one of the ways you can get around the smarter balance testing, the common core testing is actually to do well enough on your SAT or ACT. The thing is though, the SAT and ACT are not designed to be a high school exit exam. <laughs> right. It's, they're not, they're designed to be predictors of college success. Um, and similarly, I'm not, I'm actually not sure that the smarter balance or the park tests are actually designed to be college college. Uh, I mean, they're not designed to be um, uh, high school exit exams themselves. Right. And so there's, yeah, all this stuff's crazy messy and, and it's all, it's all wrapped in this paradigm of like, again, what do we, what do we call successful? Right. I want, I have a child, 11 and a half years old. I want him to be, you know, mentally healthy and physically healthy and be curious about the world. And, you know, I want him to do art and I want him to like do all this other stuff. I mean, I do want him to read and write and I want him to be able to think critically about things, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but there's all this stuff I want, I want him to be, I want him to be this whole person mm -hmm. and, and all these things, all these measurements, they're not, they're not looking for that. You know, they're, they're looking for a very narrow slice of what, um, you know, what, what humanity is supposed to be and humanity is supposed to be much more so for the record you do have a really cool kid <laughs> <laughs> he's Thank great you. yeah and i think i this is a personal question like just my never-ending quest to try to not screw up my kids any more than i'm bound to do <laughs> um, <laughs> we're all bound to do that it's, it's part right. of the <laughs> What is your feeling and like your suggestion to parents whose kids are in, you know, elementary education? And when you reach these, I mean, they have to take tests at some level, but I'm just thinking of my own daughter, like last year, who was offered to take gate testing. Um, and ultimately I let her do it, but I did kind of struggle with it. And since letting her do it, I'm like, oh, I don't know that I really should have let her take that testing. And I don't know that I would let my son taste it. Like what's your thought on gate programs in schools? When you say gate, is it, it. Um, gifted it's and gifted talented? And talented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anything like that, like talented, mm -hmm. gifted, gifted and talented. So like the accelerated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so in, in all honesty, um, you know, the gate, the whole gate system is actually really the epitome of even circling back to this whole discussion on eugenics and testing, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. it sort of presumes that there are all these kids that are somehow um, uh, just more intelligent than other kids, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and, it's, and it's really messy and complicated in that, you know, there are parents who actually believe that, right? I mean, as parents, we all believe our kids are exceptional. <laughs> right. Like, well, Mike, well, yeah, all those kids, but not my kid. Right. Or, and so we have this whole thing around our exceptionality for our own children in many ways. And so um, when our kids do well on those gate tests or whatever, I think part of like, Oh, it's just, I think a lot of folks, especially like here in like liberal, white liberal Seattle. Right. You know, they're like, Oh, you know, I don't really believe that stuff, but 
but oh yeah, but my kids, my t- my kids actually really smart, and they did, they did really great this, right? Um, and so, but it plays it plays into the worst of that stuff, and, and the Gates stuff actually really reinforces the idea that people are just genetically more. Some people are more genetically more intelligent than others. Um, and then there's the Gate programs that come after the tests, and those can vary wildly, you know. And a lot, but a lot of the times here, and like here in Seattle, if it's the high, we have ours is a highly capable program, and Basically, what that usually what usually mostly what that means is it usually just means like just a shit ton of work, a shit ton of work in class and a shit ton of homework, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily about like sparking the intelligence of these kids. It's just saying, oh, they need to be pushed more. They need more like structured academic time and more intense academic time, and that's going to be good for them. And that's what they mm-hmm. get. Um, and it's not necessarily about you know nurturing other other parts. And so. Yeah, I have the gate programs, and then it becomes a tracking, right? Then you have gate classes and non-gate classes. It just feeds into the whole, like all the stuff around, you know, who deserves which resources, and 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 it's 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 really um, it's really problematic. Um, and that's obviously not to knock you for letting your kid take that test. Um, <laughs> it's because it, we're all we're all negotiating different school systems, and everything is really is always really specific. Our conditions, our contexts are really specific. Um, in terms of the decisions we're making for for kids, um, I get that. But but in general, yeah, it's it's just it's they're, they're an issue. Yeah, and, but I'll just say this: if you want to start a fight on Facebook or social media, start critiquing the gate program or the HCC program, and all those liberal white parents who, yes. who were like, "Oh yeah, I'm down for equality, except for don't mess with my gate program." Ah, the bee, you, you, yeah. you're stirring the shaking the beehives when you do that. It's amazing yeah. to see privilege come out in that space. Yeah. This is about two thirds of the way into our interview. And it's about when it usually becomes like a counseling session for us. When we're like, <laughs> okay, help us figure out what our daily choices should be. Because it is all very hyper specific, but all of those individual specific choices add up to these, you know, patterns of practices and, and thinking about our kids, maybe these kids are a little bit older than mine, but, you know, we really purposely have our kids go to public school, but public school is where this test stuff is kicked up to the nth degree. And it's especially intense around the schools that are serving kids of color and kids in poverty. Mm-hmm. And so the, the private school in town, like our, our city doesn't have a lot of private, it has like a couple of religious schools, but it has this one um, non-religious private school that is independent, that, independent private school, independent yeah. private school that is yeah. definitely very attractive to liberal white parents in the city. Cause then they can live in the city, but their kids can go to this school. That's like super holistic and doesn't have tests. You know, it's like mm-hmm. what you just described, but it's like, well, then that is only available to such a small subset of people, it's sort of like damned if you do damned, if you don't. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'm really like, personally, we're not, you know, going to send her to private school, but I, I really do struggle with that myself. And I, I know that there are these opt-out movements and, yep. you know, a lot of, um, activism. I'd love to hear your, what you want to share about all of that, just for people who are listening, who are parents and are really thinking like, okay, when the rubber meets the road that we talk about this all the time, like when we live our lives, when you decide to buy chocolate, when you decide to, you know, whatever it is, something little, something big, where you buy a house, whatever it is, like that's, that's how so much shit just keeps repeating itself. So I don't know for people listening, like what, how do you help people wrestle with these decisions, opt out stuff specifically too? Yeah. So, and so an even better term is test refusal, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's been a whole movement of parents uh, around the country 
who said, you know what, these tests are bullshit and I'm not going to let my kid take them. And, and it's up and it's up to the school to find some sort of educational experience to fill that time, uh, that school time. Um, and it, it varies, of course, and the politics is not very too, because honestly, I do think that there's a lot of folks who I might associate with these days more with like anti-vaccine, anti-mask mm-hmm. crowd um, and sort of Trump folks uh, who are against the state. And so they were opposed, they're opposed to the test because this, this is this is the federal government overreaching into my mm-hmm. house, right? And my, my, my little kingdom. Um, and so there's there was a group of folks there, but there's also a group of sort of like you said, Katie's more sort of, um, I would say left progressive folks and folks in communities of color who were like, these tests are bad for our kids. They're bad for our teachers. We need to not, we need to stop. And so um, and so we need we need to just say stop taking the test. And so I do encourage parents of all whatever strike to be like explore your options. Um, I do believe very strongly in test refusal and test opting out. Um, we definitely did that for um, you know uh, during during my son's elementary school experience of like he just you know just wouldn't he wasn't taking the test. And the thing is almost at this point most states and certainly the federal education law actually says that parents have the right to opt out. And this was actually one of the, another one of the small successes of the of the parent opt out movement testing opting out testing movement is that it was so strong that that when they wrote the last most recent federal education law, it actually affirms the right of parents to refuse the test. Um, so that's in federal education law. Now there can be consequences, right? Some some places use tests to get from third to fourth grade, for instance, or maybe it's a high school exit exam and they don't offer any options. Um, um, but you, and you need to explore that. Some really broke schools have may, might have grants or levies that are connected to test scores. Mm-hmm. And so not having test scores can also negatively impact their funding formulas and that kind of stuff, which is really sh- shitty yeah. um, to have it like that. So, so you got to explore all that, but, but that is one of the things that folks can do. And honestly, I think folks need to organize around it. Mm-hmm. I think working with teachers unions and teachers, most of the teachers don't like these tests either. And they understand <laughs> that they're killing teaching time and messing up pedagogy and really, really ruining the, the, you know, whatever environment they're trying to create in their classroom. And, and so, um, and so there's organizing with teachers and parents um, and, and community activists, you know, folks in Massachusetts just had a huge campaign this last spring um, uh, against their test. I mean, it's still alive and kicking and it's around. Uh, although the, and, and that's the thing, right? If there's one thing the pandemic taught us, of all the bad stuff the pandemic taught us, one of the good things the pandemic taught us is that, you know, when the pandemic hit, what did they do? They canceled testing. Across the country, no one tested, and guess what? The system didn't fall apart. Schooling didn't end, right? The world didn't end, right? It's almost like, hey, if we just decided it's not going to happen, it's not going to like it didn't matter. Everyone figured out alternative methods for figuring out, you know, if you were getting into a school or whatever. Like they didn't use test scores because those didn't exist. Like they figured, like it, it sort of showed us um, in the same way that we're being shown that the economy won't fall fall apart if we don't pay back student loans, right? It's been 18 months of no student loans, that we're fine. Um, that that schooling will not fall apart if we don't have the tests. Um, and, and so that's really an option. I really encourage folks um, um, to do that. And I want to go back, going back to your private, private school comment, Katie, one of the biggest conundrums, one of the things I've learned about all this though is what I, what I think about is like, you know, when it comes to, here's what's happening, right? Basically people are paying a lot of money to have an education system that doesn't have testing and that focuses on the needs of children. Mm. And, you know, I, there's whatever, whatever ethical stuff exists around that. 
it's like, okay, then why, like, I, you just have to ask the question, why don't we just have a public school system yes. that focuses on the needs of children and learning right. and doesn't have testing and all this other crap around it. Right. We could totally like, do it. Obviously so. that has value enough to people, you know, people pay tens of thousands of dollars a year per kid to have that right. kind of education. Why can't we have that for everybody? Yeah. Mandy, do you have any other questions? I've got one more quick one, but I want to make sure you have time because I can, I can <laughs> prod, I mean, prod I, Wayne all could, day. I know. I was going to say we could go down so many rabbit holes with this entire thing, like just getting into like all of the background of capitalism and meritocracy and the arguments <laughs> that you have around that. I mean, I feel like we could go on and on forever, but no, I mean, <laughs> just what I, I do think I have, I've recently gotten in some arguments with people about the idea of meritocracy and the just belief that Americans cannot let go of that. You have to like prove your worth somehow. You have to have this system where people are rewarded for X, Y, and Z, or else everybody would just be like a lazy POS that would never come up with anything. And we'd like <laughs> languish in mediocrity for the rest <laughs> of our lives. Like, what do you say to the people who like truly believe that, like that meritocracy is the only way we progress? I mean, I, I would say that actually the sort of the factual evidence doesn't bear that out. Right. So for instance, um, you know, one of the one of the undergirding logics of meritocracy is that you're poor because you don't work hard enough, mm -hmm. right? And I'd be like, I'd be like, well, but look at all these poor people working multiple jobs, working their asses off just mm -hmm. to barely pay rent and whatever, take care of their kids and whatever. Like these are people who are just who spend their whole lives working and mm -hmm. they're never paid enough and can never 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 don't never get enough resources to to move ahead. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and honestly, that's like the majority of people in this country, like, like poverty is huge in this country and all these people are, 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 are working. Um, and it's, you know, it's, 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 it, and so to me, it's not an issue. Like the contradiction that points to is that it's not an issue, issue of the amount of hard work. People are willing to work hard to, and to pay their bills and to raise their families and that kind of stuff. Um, there, that means that there's actually other issues in the, in the way for them. Um, and then also, also, just it's it sad. I mean, I know it's true, but it, part of it is almost it's almost there's a sad part to it because, in a way, um, it, it shows like the commitment that Americans have to hating themselves. Right? Mm -hmm. We are we we internalize these things so much that we're willing to basically blame ourselves for um, for our positions in life instead of actually looking at more structural issues, issues that could be different. And the other part of it is they just folks often just don't see like. Um, like it's, it's part of it because they just don't know different. They're common sense. And this goes back to some, some of the work that uh, Katie and my advisors, Michael Apple, uh, talked a lot about was like their sense of common, their, their common sense about the world. They just don't know any different. They only see what they see and they have this one kind of logic and, and they don't like, I don't know, I would love for folks like that to be like, okay, let's, let's go check out uh, even just a moderate social democracy. Let's go to Sweden or something or, you know, whatever, Finland and, and sort of see and see what's different there and see what it's like. Right. Or shoot, not even, I don't know, not even a modern social democracy, like, you know, Great Britain has socialized medicine, right? Like, like you get medical care there. Right. I mean, there's all these things that are to be different and, and the wheels don't fall off. Those, those societies work just fine. And so we can be meeting basic human needs um, 
um, to, to, to like, to, as part of how we understand ourselves and, and in terms of our work um, and, and not see it all as meritocracy. Um, and the, the other thing I'll just say is that the idea of meritocracy also presumes that folks who've made it haven't had help mm-hmm. along the way. And there are numerous examples, you know, of whoever choose, choose your tech giant and you probably, and you know, you'll find that one of their parents gave them a loan of however tens or hundreds of thousand dollars to get them started to begin with. Right. Mm-hmm. Or choose your major corporation that's getting huge tax breaks um, um, from, uh, from the government. Um, whereas, you know, working people are told that they, that, you know, tax breaks are for, are for, are for socialists, right. When, when all these corporations are actually getting treated to huge tax breaks all the time. So, um, there, I think there's lots of, um, uh, evidence to, to, um, uh, contradict, um, that, that way of thinking. Now we know these days that evidence maybe doesn't, is not enough, um, but there's <laughs> certainly plenty to, to share. But it is, it is sad when you think about it, because it seems like, you know, there's the argument to be made that these tests aren't meritocratic. And then there's a the deeper argument that's like, we shouldn't even want the meritocratic logic to begin with. Like that's yep. not even healthy. Mm-hmm. And that, that all that is, is an incentive of fear and like the threat of loss or the, you know, like if I don't, fight super hard, then I'm not going to be taken care of instead of having just like a sense of kinship and connection and, you know, community. And I, when I think of whiteness, that's what I think of as, as like a rejection of that idea of community or interconnectedness or love, even like it's an ideology that says like, get yours while you can, because no one else is going to look out for you. And like, you just like dog eat dog, you know? And and to bring it back to the schools and testing to wrap it back around is would be to say like I've 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 asked the question in a few spaces of like well what would a different kind of assessment look like well like what if we had an ass- what if we had a a high school graduation assessment that actually was like focused on personal healing community healing connections and love right mm-hmm. um, and have it be a sort of a holistic process where someone could say hey look at all the great stuff I learned I think this is worthy of of me demonstrating that I graduated high school, right? Look um, at what and, not a prick I am. Yeah, right, yeah. Like, well, you know, um, and, you know, community could be involved in, in the assessment mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, the content of the assessment could be about helping helping aim to improve things in the community as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you could be dealing, you could be helping fight against sort of structural racism and historical trauma associated with that that you may personally have experienced or your community has experienced. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's different ways we could think about assessment that's not in this paradigm of like, you know, I got to get mine and show I'm better than the kid next to me and the other kid next to me so I can get into, you know, the most elite institution in the country, right? Um, we could have assessment that's about, hey, this makes me feel good to produce this product that I think is, that that demonstrates what I learned and, and really demonstrates who I am as a human being as well. And, and you know, this, this like, here, look, mm-hmm. now, the, the, the reason why people don't like that is because those kinds of assessments aren't made for comparison. So you can't do that, <laughs> right? You're just trying to show, look, I learned this stuff and this is valuable and it's mm-hmm. and it's it's worth learning. Yeah, like I'm, not, a, I'm not better than this kid over here. I'm not worse than this kid over there. Like right? a rite of passage. You like nobody's saying, like, I got confirmed faster than you. My bad right. mitzvah was better than you know, like it's <laughs> the rites of passage are about like who you are as a person and coming into adult membership in the community. And like, are you someone we can count on and rely on? And you know, you're a healthy member of the community. That's what a rite of passage oh, is. Oh, that, that that's dope. I could totally see that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Wayne, we could talk to you all day long. Oh. <laughs> I, there just is so much, I think I'll just, you know, say this as we wrap up, like when we started eugenics, I was like, wow, I'm going to learn things. I didn't know about like reproductive information that they can pass on. Oh, can you guys hear me? Sorry about that. 
Yeah. Right, for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was just saying when we started learning about eugenics, I thought, oh, I'm going to learn a lot more about reproductive rights. And, you know, I, I, I had kind of like a sense of eugenics as like a medical thing. And mm-hmm. just the more we learn about it, the more I'm like, what is eugenics not connected to in our society? Oh. Like literally I can't think of any system or structure that hasn't been touched by that logic um, yeah. including schools. Like, I think your work is just pointing out just how deep it goes in schools. Um, so on that happy note, um, <laughs> thank you so much. We just appreciate yeah, it. And, you. um, we, yeah, if, we'll ask you too, if there are like specific organizations, what, well, right now, like, what do you want to shout out? Um, yeah, you know, the organizations I'm connected with, like rethinking schools, obviously is, is an org that I think folks need to be checking out. Um, you know, I would say look for local and regional um, teaching for social justice connections. I know we have Northwest Teaching for Social Justice, but there's folks in California, Bay Area, there's folks in Chicago. Um, there was one in St. Louis. There was, there's been stuff in uh, New York City. So just um, there's a couple down in, in the South too. So like find those, find those kinds of connections. Um, other, other groups, I'm, you know, I've, I've been sort of connected with loosely, like um, Education for Liberation is a great group. Um, and their and their conference, uh, Free Minds, Free People, is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Newer group is the Abolitionist Teaching Network that folks might want to check out. Um, and then, um, you know, old school Fair Test. If you want to look at testing, Fair Test is a, is, a, is a good old school group to help get information on opting out and, and various issues and research around testing as well. So uh, that'd be those would be some good places to start. Thank you, Wayne. Awesome. Thank you. So much love for you and the work you do. Thank you so much. Have a great day, guys. <laughs>